The conversation you're about to hear was recorded on September 27th, 10 days before the invasion of Hamas into Israel and the ruthless slaughter and kidnapping of hundreds of Israelis. We debated whether we should continue to publish Saturday to Shabbos episodes during this ongoing tragedy. Ultimately, we decided to continue to present inspirational stories, particularly ones like the following in which the importance of Israel as the Jewish homeland plays such a vital role. I'm Jeff Cohen. Have you ever taken a trip to a destination far, far away and wondered if you could live there full-time? Leanne Grunberg Wakabayashi converted a trip to the other side of the world into a 30-year stay. But it wasn't her final destination. Her journey to Jewish observance led to one more big move. Where exactly did Leanne live all those years, and how did she discover Orthodox Judaism? Let's find out now. Leanne, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, Jeff. I'm thrilled to be here. And clearly I've given a rather large teaser saying that you spent 30 years on the other side of the world. And I know we're going to get to that because it's really the, the crux of your story. But in order to set some context, let's just give our listeners a sense of where your story begins before this major journey happens. So where were you born and raised? I was born in Montreal, raised in New York City by a Londoner mom and a Romanian dad. And I left for Tokyo when I was 25. Okay, so you just uh, teased out the uh, big moment of where you're going to go to. Tokyo is the place on the other side of the world. So before we get to that trip, can you go just a little bit into your upbringing in terms of the, the kind of school you were in and maybe some of the things your family was doing religiously, just to set some context of where your story starts? Sure. My family moved around a lot. And so they arrived in New York City when I was less than three and they were new Americans. They were immigrants. In the first years, they were on green cards. And they were sure that they wanted to be in America, but this was all new to them. Coming from non-practicing backgrounds, but with this strong desire to connect with Jewish communities and knowing that this was a chance in America where they could finally be proud of being Jewish, that was the most important thing, to find communities where there were other Jews. And so they selected places based on that. But coming from really non-practicing backgrounds, it was cookbook Judaism. It was a matter of being with other Jews who were like them. And so it was really a step-by-step process of feeling their way into a Jewish life that wasn't possible before, especially in the war years in Romania or during the Blitz in London. So I, I'm mindful of that with my parents' choices. And looking back, I could understand, with, I, I would say with more sympathy now for what they went through, being somebody who moved countries that was a very key thing for me, is to really appreciate what it means to just shift with a few suitcases, move to another country and say, we're here, we're here for the long haul. That is the kind of Judaism that I came from. And you mentioned Montreal and New York. So is the vast majority of your childhood is in New York, like in New York City? Like, where were you living? I went to school until the age of 12 in Queens in an area called Glendale, and we were members of Forest Hills Jewish Center, and then we moved to Great Neck. And so I went to junior high school and high school in Great Neck. All right, and so did you have a bat mitzvah, like as you were going through your childhood? Was that like a key anchor point in your connection to Judaism? Yeah, I would say that that was one anchor point, that I did have a 
bat mitzvah at Temple Israel in Great Neck. The other anchor point was the man who was supposed to be my bat mitzvah preparer, a young rabbi, took a job a year earlier in Japan to become the chief rabbi of the Jewish community center that I would later join. By the time I joined, he was no longer there, but he had a big influence on understanding the history of Jews in the Far East, Rabbi Tokayer. I take that as a sign that we were really destined to be part of that Temple Israel community and to Rabbi Tokayer in this roundabout way. So even though you said this rabbi goes to Japan, and you also mentioned in one of your earlier answers that you're going to end up in Japan, at the time that he's in your life, it's not on your radar at all that you would go to the other side of the world, right? It's just someone that you know when you're doing the bat mitzvah planning? Well, it was only years later that I would put two and two together when I would hear his name mentioned in Tokyo. His picture was on the wall, the little bio, the background from Great Neck, and then... Also, he's given talks on uh, the Chabad TV podcast about his meetings with the Rebbe and how the Rebbe encouraged him to go to Japan. And so in trying to understand this irrational pull toward Japan for some of us Jews, it just kind of was another piece in the puzzle of trying to understand that it's okay to not make sense of decisions at the time. All right, so let's go into this piece of your story. Where are you in school? What do you think you're going to do career-wise? And at this point, from the way you've described your childhood, it wouldn't it wouldn't seem like a major trip across the world would, would be in your future in the cards for you. It doesn't seem like there's necessarily anything going on other than this chance encounter with this rabbi, but he's going to come into your story like much later. So just help me understand, what are you going through in high school and college, and how does it then suddenly shift to this major trip across the world? I was in love with the arts. I wanted to be a writer, and I had an amazing opportunity after I finished college at UMass to work for a man, Fritz Jacoby, at the Museum of Broadcasting, who happily got fired and uh, for me, for him, and he took a job at Columbia Business School to start the public relations department, and he invited me to join him in his new job with the benefit of graduate school education, thrown into the package. So I ended up in the business school, and I was not interested in business, and I wanted to study art history, but I had to work during the daytime. The only the only major I could do was arts administration, which I could take courses in lunch and evening. And my job at the business school was to promote faculty research. And who was the only interesting guy there? Sorry, Columbia Business School professors, but the only interesting guy for me was the Japan expert. And he was a rock star back in the early 80s. Japan was number one. Every media outlet wanted to interview him. And so I got moved by the hype and the excitement of where Japan was in relation to the US, in relation to other countries at that time. And as a writer, all these ideas started to pop in my head about stories that I could do and I actually settled on writing my master's thesis about culture in Tokyo department stores because there are these things called art exhibition blockbusters in 
Tokyo department stores. Nothing like that in New York. I thought, how bizarre, how interesting. Better check it out. And so with the blessing of my advisor at Columbia, I went for a pilot trip in 1985, came back with a few stories, was sent back by Condé Nast Traveler, which was just starting up in 87, to do another story about the uh, Tokyo art scene. And so the doors were opening to me in such a beautiful, natural way, in ways that wasn't happening in New York City. I just walked through the open door. It was that simple. It was no, It was a no-brainer. I was overjoyed to be in this place where there was so much opportunity to write. And I soon got a job on staff at the Japan Times as an editor and as a writer. I was in heaven. So I told my parents I'll be back in a year. A year passed quickly. A year became two years. And I met my future husband in that second year. And then the rest is history. I stayed there for 30 years. So let's break this down a little bit of how we got from a pilot trip to 30 years. I can understand when you had this chance to go because you're so fascinated by what's going on in Tokyo. That first trip, were you thinking this was just like a trip and I'll come back just to do research? Was it in your head at all that this might be a place you'd want to settle? Not the first time, because I was really focused on getting that thesis done. You know, like any grad student, that thesis hangs heavy. And so the answer was no. I didn't see it until I came back from that trip. What did I find in the first trip? There was a conservative shul, the only synagogue in Japan, with a rabbi and a conservative rabbi, no less. So it was my background. It was familiar to me. It was something very comfortable. And I thought, I could live here. This actually a Jewish community. And back in New York, I couldn't care less about walking into a shul. But something about being in Japan made it all okay that I was not going to be walking away from my roots or be unmoored in this very Shinto Buddhist culture. It's actually interesting the way you're describing the connection to Judaism, because I would think when you're at that age, a lot of times someone's career is at the forefront and religion might be in a back burner. Like it's hard to have them moving forward at the same time. And so the way you were describing this passion for art and this desire to end up in Tokyo, I thought you were going to say, and therefore for those years, I didn't think too much about religion. But you've actually said the opposite. It seems like you found more of a connection in Japan with this specific shul. So am I, am I hearing that right? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm still friends with some of those people I met in 87, 88. We used to come together for all the, all the singles, big table at the shul on Friday night neat Moroccan food. And it was it was amazing. It was just tremendous to bond with these people in very different fields in business and engineering and high tech and, and like me journalism, coming together to have our Japan experiences and just to know that however crazy our weekday life was in a sea of Japanese that we could come together and just chill as Jews at the end of the week and enjoy roast chicken and soup. It was fantastic. Now, you also referenced a husband coming into your life because the way you've described your trip to this point, I could still see that maybe you would just do it for two or three years. There's lots of people in their early 20s who go to a foreign country for whatever experience they want to have, but then they come back to wherever they were, maybe go somewhere else. 
So as you're into this a year, two years, three years, is it the fact that a husband comes into your life what extends it beyond that? Or were you already thinking maybe this was going to be your life, even if you hadn't met someone that soon? That's, that's a really good question, Jeff. What happened in the first year was I, I went to answer an ad for a bicycle, and I thought I'd ride around the city. The city's massive, and I'd only been underground. And I thought if I have a bicycle, then I could see above ground. And I, I wanted to see Tokyo. So I buy this bicycle, and the bicycle even had a name, Cesar. It was a yellow bicycle. And uh, it was in, the owners were leaving, going back to Spain, and they lived in this beautiful Taisho-era house. Taisho-era was in the 1920s when wealthy people would incorporate modern Western features with traditional Japanese Zen garden and tatami. And so I joked to the owner, I said, I'll take the bike and the house too. And <laughs> I didn't, and you know, they were, they were living like fat cat expats. And here I was struggling as a journalist on really, on, you know, scraping to make ends meet. And they said, oh, well, we'll throw in the whole deal. We'll throw in all our furniture and, when they, and the appliances. And I just got my semi-annual bonus, this July bonus, and I had cash to actually do this crazy thing and take this house. My salary and the rent were the same. <laughs> and what I ended up doing was taking the maid's room and giving the nice, beautiful room to a young woman who could afford it, who was making good money. And I was in love with that house, to being in a house with a Zen garden and designed, handcrafted, like almost like a yacht. The, the craftsmanship of this place was stupendous. So being an, an artist, somebody who's very into aesthetics, I thought I, I could move back to New York anytime, but to live in a Taisho-era house, how many times can I have that opportunity? So by the time that I met Aki, my future husband, I was there for, for me. I was happy with this life that I had manifested, and he actually moved into my house in Tokyo. It wasn't the other way around. So did you have a thought, though, that you might want to date and marry somebody Japanese? Because you also said there was a Jewish community at this conservative shul. So you could have possibly found someone there and said, I still want to marry a Jewish person. Maybe it's from America or another country who happens to be here. How did you come to this place of, I'm going to possibly date and then marry somebody Japanese? <laughs> I just remember we're conservative Jews. What do conservative Jews do? They look for complete opposite. So the Jewish guys were looking for a nice, easygoing Japanese women. The Japanese women wanted these wealthy, self-made Jewish guys living expat lives. So it wasn't as easy as you would make it out to be. I, I wish it was, but the, the reality was it was not happening back then in the conservative shul. So then how does your future husband come into your life and, and take us inside the different cultures that are going to now come together as your relationship starts to take off? He's in Eastern medicine. He was when we met. He was interning at an acupuncture clinic. And he was, I would say, more interested in philosophy than the nuts and bolts of, of using acupuncture needles, although he was very good at it. 
the conversations that we had were fascinating, revolving around Eastern wisdom, Taoist philosophy. Now, years later, I see it's Torah, what he was teaching me. It was straight Torah. But I didn't know that. But I felt it rang true in a way that I never heard anybody talk to me about spirituality and the meaning of life and the, the purpose of a relationship quite at the depth that he was presenting it. And as a writer, it was just too good to be true. I thought, I'm not only marrying a man, I'm getting a book out of this. So <laughs> took 30 years to write the book, but the Wagamama Bride is out. And good to his word, he provided me with the copy. <laughs> I just want to, for one moment, and you can share whatever you feel comfortable about this, I'm thinking if I were your parents, it would be difficult if my daughter moved to the other side of the world, but I would probably have in my head that this is like a phase that she's going through. And even if it ends up being a year, two years, five years, I would probably be thinking at some point she's probably going to come back. But then when a Japanese man enters the picture and the relationship is taking off and is headed towards marriage... I might be like, oh, she might really like settle down and live there. So what can you tell us about what was going on within your own family as this relationship got more serious? I did hear that my mom cried when she heard the news. But my parents were both recently divorced in the mid-80s, and they both found new partners. You know, the home had dissolved. The home that I knew had dissolved, and they were living in their partners' homes. So there was this sense of, Home is gone. Home as I knew it is just not there anymore. So they understood that. You know, they understood that that was pretty much the trade-off for them to move on in their lives was to give me space to move on and make these decisions that I needed to. What I did do was bring my future husband to New York to meet them beforehand. At my sister's wedding, he came, and they really liked him. They really found him to be a mensch from a good family, and they were pleased with his character. And at the end of the day, I think that's what mattered. And so as the two of you head towards marriage, are you having conversations about religion? And now that you're going to be a blended couple, what you're going to follow together? And if down the road you have children, how you might raise them? Absolutely. And so as I write in the book, we had two wedding ceremonies, a Shinto ceremony at the Imperial Hotel, and a Jewish mock ceremony, I have to call it mock because my Israeli friend was the rabbi, in the basement of a jazz club in the center of Tokyo. So two very, very different weddings. Ours was modest, but we came up with a chuppah, and both my parents were there with their new spouses and other family members, and Aki's parents were there, and they saw that it meant something to me. And, it, and I saw that it really meant something to my parents that I was saying, I'm, don't worry, I'm not abandoning Judaism. I don't know what it's going to look like from now on, but not abandoning it. So that was, I think, very meaningful to them that they came for both weddings. But then your family goes back, and now you're in Tokyo 
I would think you're getting more time with his family. Do they speak English? Like, what's it like trying to integrate with this new family that you've inherited through this marriage? Well, there was a lot of learning Japanese in the early years. <laughs> and at some point, it was very sweet that I became his mother's teacher, English teacher. And she applied herself wonderfully. She really, in a couple of years, pretty much knew everything we were saying. So she, I think she appreciated that she was privy to our conversations at, at some early point, and that they gave me time to stumble and trip and fumble my way into the Japanese language and eventually become fairly fluent, fluent enough so that I could teach in Japanese, interview in Japanese, and raise my kids in Japanese schools where I could interact with the other mothers and teachers. So then as a next step, as you settle in and, and begin your marriage, you have kids after that, and you're, while your career is still going, what's the next phase for you and your husband? Well, the kids did not come right away. We had to wait six years. It was not easy for me to conceive. I, I was already in my 30s, but I had this uh, wonderful, miraculous pregnancy conception when I was 37, Mind you, I was doing a lot of Eastern medicine intervention, so it was natural, but done under the influence of acupuncture, shiatsu, and uh, Eastern philosophy, really, that what you think matters. If you believe it will happen, then it's going to happen. If you don't believe, it won't. And that was a big thing for a New Yorker, a cynical New Yorker, for me to think, really? You mean if I if I believe it, it's, it's going to happen? Nah. <laughs> and so maybe it took six years for me to actually sign on to believe that. And as you miraculously have this first child, what is the agreement with your husband in terms of how you're going to raise them? Are you going to show them Jewish culture, Japanese culture, and let them feel like they're part of both? Like, what's the understanding you have together? By that time, my affiliation with the conservative shul, I would say, was dwindling because all my friends had left. The initial friends had gone. It was a different place for me. And in the early years, I moved away from Yiddishkeit because if you didn't go to the conservative shul, what was there? I didn't know of anything else. And so I basically didn't have any connection those first few years. And I rem remember writing, you know, journaling on, on the high holidays, feel, you know, feeling very lonely and, and like I'd really come to a precipice. Where was I in my identity? What's going on here? How do I give my kids a Shinto Japanese background? It's impossible, and I don't want to. I thought that's his job, and that's his family's job, but my job is to express who I am. But how can I do that if there's no mentoring, if there's no rabbi and rebbitzin to follow through? So what do I do? I move into the middle of the woods. <laughs> like I move out of the city. I move into the forest two hours from Tokyo to raise my daughter. Then Chabad came to Tokyo, and somehow they found me. They wrote me a letter. They sent me an apple with a little package of honey and wished me and gave me an address. And the next thing I know it, I'm back in Tokyo experiencing what is, for me, a surreal experience. I'd never spoken to 
one of these black hat, black beard, black coat people, except in the Lower East Side when I was choosing fabrics in the 70s. So this was like, oh, you can talk to them. They have a sense of humor. They're not judging me. This was all mind-blowing. And to find them so accepting was just a tremendous feeling. And how long are you here for? We're here till the Moshiach comes. I said, really? And so that was the other thing I thought. If you're until Moshiach comes and I'm moving back to Tokyo, and I'm moving close to you guys, because this is what I need more than trees and even more than the fresh air. I need you as my fresh air. And that became the turnaround for me. I really love the way you gave this answer because the first part of your answer, you're talking about how you're so distant from Judaism and you don't really see any way that you can give your kids this exposure. And then... Hashem had another plan to plop a Chabad down in Tokyo that gave you an outlet to experience Judaism again. And this is so important for this podcast called Saturday to Shabbos, because until you gave that answer, I'm thinking, how in the world is Leanne going to find her way to Orthodox Judaism? If anything, she's getting further and further from it. So let's go into this part now. You clearly have this connection to Chabad. That doesn't necessarily mean you would become Orthodox. It might just mean okay, now I can start teaching my kids about the holidays and let them have some exposure to Judaism so they understand my background. How does it accelerate into you completely changing your life to becoming Orthodox? I was so wary and circumspect that I called myself a celebrant for the first 10 years. <laughs> no way would I call myself Orthodox. Married to a Japanese guy and raising my kids in a Japanese schools and not being kosher and, and taking the bus to Chabad to get there on, on the Shabbos in those first few years. So I was definitely going there as a celebrant. And that felt honest to me. I felt, I don't have Jewish family in Japan, but these Chabad people multiply every 18 months. So, <laughs> so now my kids have cousins. Lots of cousins. They're up to 10, by the way. So they've got all these kids coming every few years, and that was something very special to us, that the family embraced us and accepted us, accepted Aki and the kids without judgment in just such a natural way, just with so much happiness to see us. And I felt it was a genuine happiness and a way of finding how we can be inclusive. That was amazing. So I learned very quickly. You roll up your sleeves, you help make challah, you help with the laundry. Rebbitson has this growing stockpile of sewing that needs buttons and socks and this and that that needs doing, and I like to sew, and so I would help out with that. Just make yourself useful because they were doing so much for us, and that felt really good too, to be reciprocal. How did your husband feel about you starting to delve deeper into Judaism? You've had this life you've been building in Japanese culture. There wasn't this expectation that this Chabad was going to suddenly appear. And now you're starting to go there. Was was he supportive of you starting to go a little bit deeper on Judaism after this number of years where it was mostly about the Japanese culture? He's always been a very unusual man that he's searching for enlightenment or searching for some kind of role models who are showing the way to how to be, you know, an ubermensch. Then along comes uh, Rabbi Binyamin Ed Edery and Efrat Edery, and he was very impressed 
by the way they were raising the children. And he just took to the rabbi in, in such a genuine way of wanting to participate, wanting to help out, wanting to learn from him, and eventually actually writing a manuscript about the rabbi and his contributions to Japanese society because he saw that this particular rabbi was not only working in Japan on behalf of the small Jewish population. When that huge Tohoku earthquake happened and the, the nuclear meltdown and the tsunami happened, that rabbi went up for the next year almost daily to bring supplies and cheer and whatever was needed to help communities up there. So he saw that. He saw this ubermensch behavior, and that meant more to him than religion. And to this day, he's connected to this rabbi and will do really do anything for him because he feels very grateful to the way this family supported us through very difficult times. From everything that you're describing, I can see how you're getting connected to the community side of what Chabad has to offer, but it still doesn't explain to me how you go beyond that to wanting to take on elements of Jewish observance. So how does it cross over from getting involved, volunteering with the Rabbi and Rebbitzin to, wait a minute, there's something here religiously that I want to explore deeper? <laughs> I love your questions. You're, you're really good. <laughs> you're really good, Jeff. Um, nobody's asked me that before. And I would say uh, the, the key word here is children. The key here is, is, am I being a phony or am I walking the talk? So am I just bringing the kids for a Friday night meal, a place to go to eat, or is there more for us? And so what was happening, the kids were going to Japanese schools. In some schools, the lunch was provided and I started to look at the menu and say, wait a minute, there's shrimp on the menu. Wait a minute, there's pork on the menu. We're not, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. And then I said, I'm bringing in food from home. We're bringing in food because I saw other Jews doing something similar. A few were following Rabbi Edery and Efrat's lead and making clear boundaries. So that was one area where it became very natural to move in a kosher direction because my kids look different, my Japanese-looking son with his bright blue eyes definitely stands out, and my mysterious Japanese-looking daughter with her brown hair but very clearly looks like her grandma, they looked mixed and they were not accepted as Full Japanese is an expression. Hafu. Hafu means half. You're not a double, you're a half. So I wanted the kids to get out of that pigeonhole and understand, I forget about that, you're Jews. Let's kind of embrace Judaism. And then there's no question, you are 100% Jews. You got a Jewish mom, 100%. And so more and more I was going in the 100% direction as a way of helping them take ownership of their identity, of their, of, to feel Jewish pride, and to see that it was okay to be judged as not completely Japanese, that was going to be okay. 
Now, was there any Jewish day school, either through the Chabad or anywhere else, that you had the option of pulling them from the Japanese school as you were starting to grow no. and say, maybe I want to give them a no. day school education? No. no, and remember, this is before internet. It's not like you could hop on. Nothing like that. The only thing we had was a preschool. One of the Chabads, Rabbi Mendes, because there's two Chabads in Tokyo, Rabbi Mendes' wife, Hannah, started a wonderful preschool program that my son attended and enjoyed. But then that was it. There was nothing after that. In those days, if you wanted to continue homeschooling, you did it by telephone. We, we weren't going to do that. There's no way. I mean, Aki had his boundaries, and he, was, he definitely wanted his kids in Japanese schools, and that was not negotiable. But what was, was negotiable was what days of the week they would be at school. And so when sports day, which is, you know, huge, it's like Purim. It's a very important holiday in the Japanese um, curriculum. When it fell on Shabbos or fell on Yom Kippur, I put up boundaries. I said, they're not participating. And it freaked him out. It just absolutely made him flip. You know, the kids are going to be traumatized if they don't participate. And I said, no, they won't. They'll be okay. But I had to stand my ground on those things. When my son in sixth grade, they went on a field trip to Okinawa, a, a four-day trip after studying about the war in Okinawa for, for a whole year. And it, the trip, the flight was on a Saturday. And I said, we're not doing it on a Saturday. And Aki said, what do you mean you're not doing? What are you going to do? I said, we're going to go early. We're going to go Friday. We're going to find an army base that will accept us, and we're going to have Shabbos on an army base in Okinawa. And so that's what we did. So I became creative and tried to kind of do one-upmanship. Whatever it looked like I was depriving my kids of would be actually turned around. Something bonus would come into play. It took some doing, and it was not necessarily cheap to do these options, but I was so... I just saw that this is the only way to go if, while we were living in Japan. And so at this point in your lives, as you're raising your kids, you would say you're holding Orthodox kind of the best you can? Like your, your home is kosher? Are you only eating kosher? You're, you're keeping Shabbos? Like which things are you doing at this point? Because you don't have the typical infrastructure, say someone who's living in Queens where you were before, where everything is around you that you would need to live a, like a fully Orthodox life. Yeah, I, you know, I was doing the best I can sort of thing meaning that we did go out to restaurants, but we didn't eat tray full of the menu. We ate things that were quasi-kosher. And I made my own challah. At some point, I wouldn't take the bus to Chabad. It was a 14-kilometer walk. Whoa. <laughs> Three and a half hours. And Aki laughed at me when I started doing it. He said, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Ha, ha, ha. Three and a half hours later, my daughter and I turned up. And he came by car with my son. My son never bought into it. But by doing that, I got to this place where I said, you know what? We need a Shabbos apartment near Chabad. We need that. And he goes, what? An apartment just for Shabbos? I said, uh-huh. So step by step, as my commitment grew, I saw what I needed in order to keep going on this journey. But I never called myself orthodox. I would call myself going in a more observant direction. 
And it was really, as I, you know, as I say before, it was what was what my kids needed, what I felt I needed to be an honest mother, to be true to my roots, to be true to their future. I had to do this. I would think our listeners at this point would assume that you're doing the interview today from Japan. But that's not the case. So there must have been something else that happened that you're doing this interview from somewhere else. So let's go into that part of your life. Okay, so six years ago I made Aliyah. And it was not a premeditated Aliyah. You know, I barely knew geography of, of Israel. Although my son did have his bar mitzvah in Givatayim, near Tel Aviv. But we had a family crisis in the year 2017. My daughter, who has bipolar disorder, was having repeated hospitalizations under very harsh conditions in Japan. And I took to heart the meaning of bipolar. Just look at the words. Look at our marriage. It was bipolar. It was East meets West. It was Shinto Buddhist meets Judaism. Of course she was bipolar. What else would she be? For a very sensitive young woman, it was a teenage girl. It was just too much. And the rabbi in Rebetzin and the rabbi himself in writing letters urged me to go to Israel on an exploratory trip. So I went for, okay, for five weeks I'll go, go join an Ulpan, we'll see what it's like. And what happens while we're here? She has another breakdown. She ends up in an Israeli mental institution. Here I am on a tourist visa. And before I knew it, I'd met, it was a crazy story, but I met a woman who was a real estate agent who was helping me and she was, also, she was also psychic, a psychic realtor who was also very Chabad-connected, who was predicting that we would do much better in Israel and kindly took me to Yamin Moshe, which is this beautiful neighborhood in Jerusalem, overlooking the walls of the old city, right down to the Dead Sea, with flower boxes everywhere. It's history, gorgeous. She goes, this is where you belong. This is the artist colony. This is for you. You'll, you and your daughter will thrive here. I said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> a week later, I signed the contract, and I called Aki. I said, I'm, I'm not coming back. What do you mean you're not coming back? <laughs> and so I really did it for my daughter's sake and for my son's sake, because I felt that if I stayed he would come. And lo and behold, a month later, he joined me. We got him into boarding school in Israel. He stayed for three years in the Na'ale program in a place called Ayanot. He came out fluent in Hebrew and has friends for life from this experience. He's back in Japan, but he's doing very much work as a kind of bridge between Israel and Japan, working with the rabbi and working in the tourism business. So it's just an amazing thing that he also found that his identity is showing who he is, that he, as is an Israeli. So I just want to get a few more details around this really remarkable story you've just told about the medical situation, you know, with your daughter and this realtor that you met. At the time that you took the exploratory trip, 
two questions. One, like, how old are your son and daughter at that point? And also, does your husband know that it's an exploratory trip, meaning when someone's exploring, there's a chance they're going to like what they see and want to stay? And what would that possibly mean for your marriage? And there's like multi-part question, but there's some details here. I just want to round out your story. She was, uh, my daughter was 19, heading toward 20. My son was just 15. We were really struggling with the bipolar situation. It was tearing us apart because we both had very different visions of what we saw for our daughter. We did feel that the differences were making it very, very hard on all four of us, and it wasn't a healthy situation, and he knew it and I knew it. And in the end, we thought, we're walking our spirituality. Our spirituality is we want what's best for the whole unit. We want what's best for all of us. And if we can't agree on being in the same country, then let's agree where our daughter will thrive or has more potential to have a beautiful life, a good life, a life where being tagged with a disability is not the end of existence. And I found here people are much more compassionate because almost every family has a member who's got some kind of mental thing going, whether they want to admit it or not. The minute I start talking about it, you would not believe how many people tap me on the shoulder. And actually what happened was I had to cancel writing articles for the Jerusalem Post, which I write for. And my editor said, you got to write about your daughter's stay in Etanim Hospital. I said, what? Well, it turns out she has a brother who has the same, who had the same condition. And so it meant a lot for her. It was like, suddenly we realized maybe this is a mitzvah to actually talk about this. And let's take away the stigma. Let's get real and say this exists, but people could have good lives. So as you're having this conversation with your husband, and it starts to be about where's the best place for our daughter to get the best treatment and have the most normal life that she can and, and feel comfortable how did you get to a place as a couple that the answer was Israel? I could see it being easier for you to say that than for him who really doesn't have a connection there. And then what does this ultimately mean for the state of your marriage once you come to this decision that Israel is going to be the place? He was, I think, pretty much ready to go to have it just be continued a long-distance marriage. But in in my mind, it, it just had to end. It was all, you know, I keep using this word honesty. I had to live true to myself, I had to be my true self. I was beyond being a Japanese spouse. I just wasn't there anymore. I, was, I couldn't do it. So what is your life like now? So you make this decision to divorce your husband. You have both kids originally in Israel. You said that your son goes back to Japan. So, so he's there now closer to your ex-husband and your daughter is closer to you now in Israel. Like, what's your life like now? Oh, it's... <laughs> Israel's not easy, as we know, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I wake up every day, and still after six years, I go, oh, my God, I'm in Israel. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I feel so blessed. And I see the blessings heaped on my children in different ways. And I just say, oh, we're so, thank God there's a God. Thank God. There's a Torah. Thank God there's learning going on. Thank God there's good people in Shabbos tables. 
and laughter and joy. And no matter what the media wants us to believe, this is the backbone of Israeli culture, and that's not going away. So I, I would have to answer in, in a word, gratitude. And the second is possibility, potential. It turns out that my daughter had this creative bent, but we didn't know what kind of creative thing she would pursue. Well, it turns out, she, as a child, she loved puzzles, absolutely adored puzzles, and was very quick at them. What is she now? She's a mosaic artist. She's a very high-level mosaic artist, passionate about what she does. She's in started being juried shows. It's just unbelievable. We just couldn't have ever imagine this happening in Japan. So I would say that the family in Japan is very proud of who she's become. They're very accepting of what the situation is, and they just want the best for her. And that's, you know, what I say is the mensch-like behavior of this family. They put their own egos aside and they say, what is best for this child, for our grandchild, for our daughter? And they know that that's where I'm coming from as well. And what about for you personally, as you were getting deeper into Judaism, but you were in Japan, there was only so far you could take it given what was around you and how much access you had to Jewish things. Now you find yourself in Israel. Did this open the floodgates of you continuing to explore Jewish observance now that you had all the restaurants and shuls and all that stuff around you? Yeah, just remember that there were always airplanes. So <laughs> I was I was going to lots of different Chabad houses in the years that I was in Tokyo, in Houston, in London, even Bucharest, you know, different parts of the world to see what what it looked like, Paris. So yeah, I was exploring that way, and I was always collecting books in Judaica shops on my travels. When we finally moved to Israel, I found myself Chabad Rebetzin, and then I f found in my community, I was living in Yamin Moshe Beit Yisrael, it's the shul, the orthodox shul there, and I found that more than the learning, what I really needed was compassionate people who could help me get through the adjustment period with a daughter who was recovering from hospitalization, and they were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant. So that's where I came from, is first I had to take care of the emergency in our family and then settle into learning and settle into other things that I would have the mental space to do. And so now, yeah, I just came back from Yerushalayim for Yom Kippur, and it was an amazing experience to go back to my old shul and be with old friends. And I love it. I love it being there, and I love being in Haifa for different reasons. So I just feel this expanding world being in Israel. Certainly we got to a lot of details of your story, but we can't get to as much detail as someone would get from your book. So let's give you a chance just to mention the name of the book again, where people can find it, and a few details you want to share about it. Sure. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. It's called The Waga Mama Bride, A Jewish Family Saga Made in Japan. It's available in Israel at Pomerantz Bookstore in Jerusalem and on Amazon. It is very much aligned with what I've told you today with a lot more details about how this came to be and the TLC, the love and care of the, of the Chabad community. 
seven chapters have been serialized on Chabad.org, and the book has been a cover story for Ami magazine and other publications. So it's if you want to read about it, there's plenty to read on different websites. I'd love for people to engage with the story and get back to me. If I'm happy to do book club events, and I recently did one for Emuna of Jerusalem, and I'd love to answer tough questions because my story is not a cup of tea to a lot of people. What do you mean you left your husband? He was a mensch. He was a nice guy. How could you do such a thing, right? People don't understand that when you've got really a family member in crisis, a child in crisis, that's what you do. That's what I chose. So I want to be a person who can inspire other parents to make tough decisions and to do what the rabbi said when he visited me in the hospital. He said, Leanne, it's so simple. He said, what's simple? He said, all you have to do is chain your daughter to your ankle. No problem. (laughs) 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 So I followed his advice for many years, but thank God she's an independent young woman. She's got a very full life, and she doesn't need any chains. Thank you very much. And so we've gotten to that place, thanks to being in Israel. Leanne, I just want to say that we've done over 100 episodes of Saturday to Shabbos, and you are clearly one of the most unique journeys that we've had a chance to share on the podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time today and joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. My pleasure. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C. HLISmedia.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.